Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. In the past, you did not know God, so you were slaves of beings who are not gods. But now that you know God, or I should say now that God knows you, how is it that you want to turn back to those weak and pitiful ruling spirits? Why do you want to become their slaves all over again? You pay special attention to certain days, months, seasons, and years. I am worried about you. Can it be that all my work for you has been for nothing? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm going to put a picture up in front of you today to start off, and I need to ask a question. This is a picture of a whale, and uh, there's a boat back there. And uh, I need to ask, how many of you have been in a place? Kelly, are you my volunteer already? Would you like to talk? I would love to. Yeah, come on up. Yeah. She, she, she knows the question from the first service, so step up. Okay. So the question is, have you been whale watching? Yes. Yes. I mean, so here's the picture. And this is a whale. There's a boat in the back. Okay, so orca. where did you do your whale watching? In Alaska. In Alaska. Alaska. And was it on, like, were you out on a boat? Yes, yes, on a ferry. Okay. And what kind of whales? Well, there was a variety. Okay. But we did see some orcas, some okay. killer whales. Okay. And we saw some beluga. Beluga. And whale. we saw, I actually saw a norwhal once, which is the unicorn. The norwhal? One. Like... Mm-hmm. Hope you find your bet, your dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. That one. Awesome. Bye, buddy. Bye. Very good. Um, biggest, were they, I mean, give us a size kind of. Well, like, I would love to see a blue whale, yeah. which is massive. Yeah. But they were huge and just left when they would, you know, breach the surface and then Splash down, just leave a huge splash. So they uh, they were actually jumping and doing yes. that whole thing? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after whale watching, you come back. What's your biggest takeaway from having that experience? Well, you know, they're just massive and amazing animals. And it's I think maybe just God's creation is so amazing. That's cool. That's cool. Give Kelly a hand. Thanks. Give Kelly a hand. Now... The reason I had her do that is because I've never been whale watching, and uh, I, as much as I would like to try to describe it, I can't. Some of you, maybe, who have uh, been whale watching um, have maybe put that up there on the top of your list as, you know, one of those things you'll probably never forget, right? Um, And part of that is because whales, they're just doing what they're supposed to do, right? That's that's the life of a whale. You're supposed to be free in the ocean. Well, um... Sometimes we uh, take whales and animals like that and we hold them in captivity, okay? And this is not a uh, sermon about whether that's good or bad or otherwise. I'm just saying that that's what it is. And so um, some people don't like that. And so there was um, in an aquarium on the Pacific coast of North America uh, some years ago, some animal rights activists got to this aquarium that was right alongside the coast of the uh, Pacific Ocean. And for some, uh, somehow they managed to set the whale that was captive in the aquarium that, you know, did 
uh, shows for people and uh, I'm sure was very well taken care of and very, very well trained and enjoyed his life and, and his job. Uh, but these activists managed to set the whale free. And so the, the thing that happened was remarkable. Like they were able to usher this whale out into the ocean and it darted out into the freedom. And they thought, mission accomplished, yes. And then they realized after just a few short minutes, hours, I'm not really sure what the time frame was, the whale voluntarily came back to the aquarium. It was as if, you know what, I'm a little better off being in the aquarium, being looked after uh, in captivity than being free in the unknown world outside. That's amazing. Uh, Here's the the line that I want to use for today. It goes like this. We, We go with what we know. We go with what we know. And that's what the whale was doing. The children of Israel under Moses had the same kind of choice. If you're in your daily Bible reading, you're kind of in that exodus where they, uh, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt and uh, out of slavery under the leadership of Moses, and now they're facing a long journey in an unknown future, and often they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Uh, when they do have regular food, they get tired of it. They're afraid of people chasing them and people they might have to fight, and one time there was no water to drink, and whenever, time, whenever they get frustrated and angry and confused, there's this same cry that comes out. Why in the world did we leave Egypt? We were better off as slaves there. Maybe we should go back. And sometimes they actually plotted to choose a different leader other than Moses so that they could go back to Egypt. And like a whale returning to captivity, the Israelite people sometimes wanted to go back to Egypt. And the question is this, why would anyone voluntarily return to slavery? That's the question. And the answer is that we go with what we know. We go with what we know, even if it sometimes means chains for us. It's why people in abusive situations stay. It's why people in dehumanizing jobs don't find other jobs because they feel like there's nowhere else to go. It's why the prisoner that was locked up in 1980 has really no desire to be pardoned. Because can you imagine navigating the technology of today when the greatest thing you'd ever known at the time you were incarcerated was a VCR? That's scary. And that type of dilemma, this choice to stay in slavery or go back to slavery is the issue in our passage today. These Galatian Christians have come out of the Egypt of their slavery, their idolatry where they worship false gods, the non-gods that that Paul talks about in verse 8. And they have been set free from these non-gods. They have been redeemed by God and His Son, and now they have the Spirit living in them. But it seems that they've had kind of a taste of this wide world of freedom, and they're really not sure because it's unfamiliar territory to them. And so in addition to that, the teachers who have come in after Paul have come alongside them in Paul's absence and whispered in their ear, you know what, it makes sense to add to Jesus. You need to add the laws and the rituals and the regulations and the teacher's theology was clear that Jesus isn't enough. If you really want to be right with God, 
then you need to obey ceremonies and rituals and diets and laws and you must know Jesus, yes, but you should also become Jewish in your day-to-day living and then, then you'll be fine before God. And Paul's words that he starts with in the beginning of chapter 3 is, oh dear idiots, why would you do this? If you really want to be right with God, you already are. If you follow the teacher's prescription, you're in danger of going back to, back under slavery where you came from, the non-gods that you came from. And that's the way of the idiot. But at the end of the day, we go with what we know. And so there are some amazing things in this verse that we are told. They are startling One of them is going to be pretty alarming to you. It's not easy to see right away, and so we're going to have to dig a little bit. What what do these verses tell us? First, uh, they tell us that the Galatians are on a path that's very dangerous, a path that's very dangerous. The danger lies in a concept that Paul brushes by. Uh, Last week, it was in verse 3. We brushed by it. We didn't really focus on it, but he mentions it again in verse 8 and 9. And let's start with verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Who are these non-gods that Paul's talking about? Um, The label that he uses for the non-gods is found in verse 3 and verse 9. These non-gods are, the NIV will say, the basic principles of the world. The RSV will say the elemental spirits of the universe. The King James Version will say the elements of the world. The Greek phrase is very unclear. Nobody really knows how to translate it except for the last word. It's the stoikia to kosmu. And the, the, the last word you might recognize if I say cosmos because that's where we get our word universe from. And so it's the stoikia of the universe. And The consensus is that Paul is using this word with its common usage in mind, not its dictionary usage, not its exact definition. And the common usage of the word is more of a concept. And the concept is this, that by behind every basic element of the world was a God, was a deity. And so the basic elements of the universe, uh, we could list a thousand of them, but let's just say earth, wind, fire, sun, water, moon, stars, agriculture, wine, sex, money, fortune, politics, war. We could go on and on. Basic elements of the universe. And it was believed that behind every one of these categories, there was a deity, there was a God who ruled over that category, all the basic elements of the world. And so if you were a Greek and you were into partying, you worshipped Bacchus. He was the Greek god of parties. Okay? If you were a warrior and a soldier, you probably prayed a lot to the Greek god Eris because he was the Greek god of war. Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of sexual love and beauty. Hera is the Greek goddess of marriage and family. So if you want to have a family, you're spending a lot of time with Hera. Poseidon is the Greek god of the sea. Demeter is the Greek goddess of agriculture. And even Hypnos is a god. Anybody want to take a stab at what the god of, uh, the, uh, Hypnos was the god of? Uh, some of you did not get a lot of Hypnos last night. Sleep! There it is. 
Hypnos was the god of sleep. And so the Greeks had their own gods and goddesses for every element of life. And, and these were the stoichia. These were the spirits behind every created thing that was worshipped. Farmers prayed to the agricultural god, sailors to the sea god, merchants to the prosperity god, and so on and so on. And this entire system we call paganism, paganism, that every created thing has a god. And so what Paul is doing here with this thought is that he's reminding these Galatian Christians of something they're very familiar with, they don't need any explanation about, that every created thing, whether it's making money or having sex or plowing a field or climbing a mountain or navigating the sea or gazing at stars, every created thing can be worshipped and shaped into the basis of a religion. And that's where you were, oh dear idiots, before you came to know Jesus. You worshipped all of these non-gods, and then you found the gospel. And Paul's point with them is this. If you turn from Jesus now, if you turn from the true gospel, which we have uh, said over and over is the true gospel is Jesus plus nothing. There you go. If you turn from that, the only alternative is to go back to these basic parts of life and the world and worship them instead. Oh, dear idiots, your only alternative to being free is to go back to the aquarium. Your only alternative to being free is to be caged again, to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. A better way might be to word it might be this, the only alternative to the gospel of Jesus is idolatry. And that's a word that we're pretty familiar with. It means to, cre- uh, to worship created things rather than the one who created them. And so if we reject Jesus, that's the only option that is left to us. We will worship something. That's the truth. The truth is nobody on the planet is an unbeliever. We were designed, we were made to worship something and everybody does worship worship something. We will never not worship. The question is what we will worship. And again, we go with what we know. And that's the danger. And Paul says you have a choice. Either you're worshiping the true God or you're worshiping something that you're treating as if it were the true God, but it wasn't and never can be because it was never intended to be that. And Paul even calls these non-gods weak and worthless. Worthless is this term for beggarly. It means that it is something that is destitute of resources. I remember going to uh, India and getting to go into a Hindu temple in India And before we went into the main inner workings of this temple, I I wasn't very familiar with what, you know, where we were stepping when, but we stepped into this room that was very small, but all it had in it was bells, just a bunch of bells and gongs. And the priest who let us in started ringing the bells one by one. He'd go all around the room, ring the bells, he'd beat the gongs, ring the bells. And our guide said, Do you know why he's doing this? No, we don't. Would you tell us? He's waking up his God. Weak and worthless. What kind of a God is it if you have to wake him up? How dependable can he be if he sleeps till 11? Right? Paul says that's who you're worshiping. 
worthless, sleeping gods. Oh, dear idiots. That's your only choice if it's not Jesus. And not surprisingly, idolatry is one of the main themes of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, 10 commands show us how to live life. And God boils down uh, all of life and success in life to 10 bullet points. And the first two are the most important. Do you remember what the first two are? Anybody want to take a stab? What's the very first one? Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me, right? And anybody want to take a stab at the second one? Do not make any graven idol, any image, and worship it. An image of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below, don't make anything and bow down to it. The first two are all about idols. And do you want to know the secret to living? God gives it to you in the first two commandments of the ten. He says, don't fall to idols. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, hits on this on the sermon on First John. Because John concludes his book with, a, with an interesting phrase. Uh, just a little uh, five-chapter book, the book of First John. And the, the last phrase that he, he concludes with, he signs off with, is, dear children, keep yourself from idols. And that's a weird way to end a book. Even Either John is pretty terrible at organizing his thoughts, or it's a purposeful summary statement of everything that he's written. And Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, John, therefore, is teaching us that the greatest danger and greatest enemy that confronts us is not a matter of deeds or of action, but of idolatry. That may sound strange to some. Some think that above all, what we need is to be warned about not to do certain things. But our deeds and our actions are always the outcome of our attitudes and our thoughts. And so John takes the same procedure as the Ten Commandments, and that's why I give you this quote. All the scriptures always start like this. They always say, they always start here, that the greatest danger and the reason for all other wrong is idolatry. Do you want to know why we have trouble keeping commandments 3 through 10? It's because we haven't kept 1 and 2. 1 and 2 are the reason for the flaws and the brokenness in your life. It's because of idolatry. And if you've ever failed to be kind and honest and loving, it's because something is an idol in your heart and has taken God's place. And the very first question to ask is, what is it in me? What is it that I have in place of God that is causing me to do this? What have I put on God's throne that I need to take away and make sure that God gets back on his throne? Idolatry is under every sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones de uh, defines an idol like this. An idol is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central to me, anything that seems to me essential and absolutely necessary, anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and arouses me and attracts me so easily that I give my time and my effort and my money to it effortlessly. Did you catch what Martin Lloyd-Jones just did? He just gave you a way to tell what your idols are. He says, your calendar and your bank statement will tell you 
what your idols are. What are you giving your time and your effort and your money to effortlessly? But here's the thing. As you go down through those things, idols are not necessarily bad things. They're not necessarily uh, crazy, ugly sin. I mean, money, right? I I need money. You need money. We all live with money, but money by itself isn't an idol, but it can be. Idols are good things that we've made into ultimate things, good things that we've put on God's throne. And so the basic things, earth, wind, fire, farming, sex, boats, marriage, they can all be turned into something that I have to have. And that's what screws us up. When something good becomes the ultimate, that I have to have it, or life isn't complete, then it becomes a deity in my life. And it's not the true God, so it's more like a demon. And it becomes the reason that I get so twisted up. And so sin is just the symptom. All sin has an idol behind it. We worship elements of the universe because we go with what we know. And oh dear idiots, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Next in this text is a reality that's disturbing. And it's going to be disturbing because we're all good church people. (laughs) Here's what Paul says. It's an astounding thing. He gives us a glimpse, a reminder of what these Galatians were before Jesus. And now where they're headed. And there's a surprising conclusion. And so he tracks their spiritual journey. And I want you to watch and see if you can pick up what's happening. Before they knew Jesus, that's verse 3 and verse 8 and verse 9. It's easy to picture what they were. They were very pagan. They were very licentious people. They were literally worshiping idols, the basic principles of the world, praying to created things rather than the one who created them. Then, verse 9, Paul says, you came to know the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. And that was great. But then the teachers came in and they said, wait, Jesus is good, but you have to add the law in. If you don't add the law in and be becoming Jewish yourself, then you won't truly have salvation. And so they are hooked into going back is what Paul says, because we go with what we know and what they are being talked into. And this is what I want you to get is to adhere to the rules, the ceremonies, and the observances of Judaism, to be moral and to do everything by the book, to be more moral, more religious, more strict, more conservative, more rigid, and then God will hold you up as righteous. And I want you to pay attention to their path. The Galatians, before they met Jesus, were pagans who just followed whatever lusts they felt, But now they're trying to do the exact opposite. They were rebellious. Now they're uber religious. They were secular. Now they're super sacred. They've turned 180 degrees. Life used to be about sex and money and power and crazy mythological gods. And now it's about circumcision to prove that I'm a part of the club and no pork for me because I follow God and Sabbath. I won't dare break the Sabbath because I follow God. And so the Galatians now are going to this strict obedience and to the letter of the law as a way to earn God's favor. And so do you see the path here? 
In our 2018 verbiage, we might say this, that they took off the prostitute boots and they put on the prairie dress. That's what's going on here. And Paul says, and this is the astounding part, if you do that, if you go from here to there, it may seem like you've done something, but you're really just going right back to the place you started from. Both lead to the same place. And that's astounding. Do you see why that's outrageous to us? As church people? Come on. I mean, surely. Surely the modest dress and the, yeah, I mean, keeping rules and righteous living, surely that's better. Surely we would want to have a lot of clothes on rather than a few. Paul says, not necessarily. None of it measures up to God's standard of righteousness. And it really doesn't matter how much of you is clothed. If you don't have Jesus' righteousness draped over you, it won't matter. You might as well go back to worshiping Aphrodite, is what he's saying. Why does he say this? It's because we can either be our own Lord and Savior by following through with all of our lusts and and make idols out of uh, sex and family and greed, thinking that those things will give you life, or you can do the very same thing and you can get very religious and really moral and you're still on your own. You're still being your own savior. Instead of following your lusts, you're following your religion. You're not following Jesus, but Christianity, and Christianity has become the idol. And both tracks lead you to the same place, enslaved by the created things that aren't God's, that never have been gods, they never will be gods because they have no power to save and all you're doing is going back to the aquarium because we go with what we know. There's always a pullback. Paul even gives one of their symptoms as an example. Remember from before that the sin in our life is just the symptom of the idol we've put in God's place. And so look at verse 10. Paul is saying, look at you. Look at what you're doing. You're observing days and months and seasons and years. What's that all about? They, they're all symptoms of the idol worship, the, the idol of self-righteousness that was in their hearts. It's the Jewish calendar that Paul is referring to here, these days and months and seasons and years. And they are meticulously following all the holy days and the feasts and the celebrations, depending on what time of year it was in the Jewish calendar. And by following them, they think that they're being ultra-religious and thought that they would gain God's approval, that they would be more Christian, closer to God. But think about this. Paul, this is why Paul brings it up. Why in the Old Testament did the Jewish people celebrate these days? Why did they do it? Why did they have these holy days and these feasts? Weren't the, wasn't the point of all of those that they all looked forward to something that God was going to do in the future? One day, God would bring about a great act of redemption that he would accomplish on the earth. And those of us living 2,000 years later, uh, past that day, would look back and we would say, oh yeah, all of those feasts look forward to Jesus, the Messiah, and his death on the cross, sacrificial death for us, so that we could be seen as holy. He would take our sin on himself, and he would die, and he would be buried in a tomb, and three days later, he would resurrect, 
And all of those Old Testament observances looked forward to that. And Paul says, exactly. That great act of redemption has already come. But you're still celebrating the days and the months and the seasons and the years. And underneath that is a denial that God has done His work through His Son, Jesus. And that's why Paul concludes in complete exasperation in verse 11. Oh, maybe I've wasted my time here. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And their problem is our problem. We go with what? We know. Maybe the perfect picture of that is the story Jesus told of two brothers in Luke chapter 15. One of the brothers took his inheritance and he ran and he lived a pagan life, worshiping by his urges. The other brother, the older brother, was perfect. He stayed at home. He did everything that the father wanted him to do to the letter of the law. He did all the right things on the surface, but neither of the sons had a real relationship with their father. One because of living his own way and one because he lived exactly the way the father wanted him. And both were just simply attempts to control the father to get his stuff rather than to really know him. And one did it through rebellion. One did it through religiosity. And so maybe you know the story. The, the rebellious son comes home and the father welcomes him and puts a robe on his son who had squandered all of the family's wealth in wild living. He throws a party and he invites everybody in the town, come to the party because my son has come home. My rebellious son is back. And at the end of the day, the prodigal, the utterly sinful son, the one who didn't deserve the party, gets to go in to a banquet for him. And all the while, the elder brother, stays outside. It's the elder brother who is the only one in town that never goes into the party. He never goes in. He never realizes that his perfection, that his religiosity, that his moral superiority make him just as ugly as his whoring brother. He never reaches that conclusion. That's a great lesson for us because some of us might identify today with the younger son. Maybe, maybe in the past you have gone off and you've lived party to party, but probably most of us, even some of us who used to identify with the prodigal, have been around here long enough that we have begun to identify with the older brother. And I'm doing everything that you ask, God, and life still isn't working out, God. God really doesn't want your work. He wants you. The non-gods are anything that we raise to take the place of God. And for some of us, that's our really, really righteously good deeds. And we've put on our moral record in the place where only God should be. And that's like the whale going back to the aquarium. That's like the Egyptians going back, or the, the Israelites going back to Egypt. We will be enslaved just as much by being moral as immoral. And so how do we steer around this? Pretty easy. In this text, there's an answer that's destructive. And that's what we need. We need to destroy some things in our life. If we go with what we know, then it's what we know that determines where we go. That's really corny, but it works, okay? 
If we go with what we know, then it's what we know that determines where we go. Verse 8 says, when you did not know God. Verse 9 says, but now you know. Or more importantly, you are known by God. The gospel is a bit more than just to know of God. It's to know and to trust what God has done. That God has done work on your behalf to become the righteousness that you could never become through Jesus. And the answer to destroying the idols in your life, the non-gods, is to know what God has done and worship Him and to stop trying to find your life in in immorality or stop trying to find your life in ultra goodness. They're both idols. And instead, find your life in the one who knows you. And that's a call to destruction. The goal should always be to destroy the idols in our life. And ultimately, to destroy your idols, you have to know what God has done and to throw yourself into his care. Do you know him? Do you have him? Is he the only thing that you can never lose? The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Father, we thank you that you are in the place You're in the place that matters. And the minute we take you out of that place, that's when our troubles begin. Paul is warning the Galatians not to do that, to make sure that you're in the primary place where you belong. Father, would we take that message today and would we understand it just like those first readers of this letter did? Would we evaluate our lives? Would we see what we have put on the throne instead of you? And would we make that different and put you there instead? It's an almost impossible thing to truly worship the God of the universe. But... It's far easier than anything else that we could ever try. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.